Did you know that the U.S. healthcare system is responsible for 10% of national greenhouse gas emissions? In today's episode, you're going to learn about how a pediatrician who studied landscape architecture in college is using clinical informatics and design to address the health impacts of climate change. I'm Bon Kud, the host of Design Lab. It's a podcast where we explore the question, how might we design healthier lives? Today's guest is Chetan Sarabu. He is a pediatrician trained in landscape architecture, pediatrics, and clinical informatics. He builds anastomoses across these fields to design healthier environments and systems. Chetan's a clinical assistant professor of pediatrics at Stanford Medicine, and he is the director of clinical informatics at ShareCare. He works on designing and implementing a wide array of innovations ranging from patient portals, EHR transformation, virtual clinical trials, and artificial intelligence-driven digital biomarkers to health information policy initiatives all through the lens of health equity and patient privacy. He draws upon his background in landscape architecture to implement and research nature-based health solutions such as the health benefits of urban green and blue spaces and park prescriptions. He is shaping the emergent field of climate health informatics, which brings together emergency preparedness, sustainability, and environmental health with a technology framework for climate health adaptation and mitigation. You can find our new website at designlabpod.com. There you can register for our amazing newsletter, which drops each week. And you'll be able to see an archive of all of our podcasts. We have over a hundred. Go to Apple Podcasts, give us five stars, leave us a review, tell someone about the podcast, share about the podcast on social media. We really thank you for your support. Now, my conversation with Chetan. Chetan, welcome to Design Lab. We're good friends. We've known each other for a while, and I had a chance to meet you in New York City recently, and I loved hearing about your work, so thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Bon. It was great to see you in New York as well, and so glad we connected and excited to be here today. Yeah. You have a really diverse career path. You were trained as a pediatrician, but you had stumbled into a class when you were a student at Cornell and you ended up studying landscape architecture. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. It was very serendipitous. I was at Cornell as a pre-med biology major, but I always had an interest in design and looking at the bigger picture but I didn't really know what that would be like. And one day and I was wandering around one of the biology buildings and discovered this amazing space, the Landscape Architecture Studio. There were plants, there were people building cardboard models, there were people drawing, and it was just a space full of creativity and nature. It probably looked a little bit different from organic chemistry class. Totally, totally. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just... You know, I knew nothing about it, and I decided to just go talk to the department chair. You know, I told him I was a pre-med student. I had an interest in designing airports. Do you think there's a role for me here? And he looked at me with a puzzled look and said, 
You know, why don't you take one of the intro classes? I took an intro design studio class where I learned to draw urban plazas and spaces. We learned to draw trees and really learned a lot of the fundamental principles of of designing space. Mm. Similar to, you know, for I think a lot of people are familiar with architecture where you're talking about the design of buildings. Yeah. Landscape architecture is really the design of outdoor space mm. at all different scales. So it could be, you know, your backyard all the way to a large park like Central Park in New York City mm. to even larger spaces like planning whole new cities. So it's really about that design of outdoor spaces. And that, yeah, completely was transformed the way I started to think about design and also about health. You know, I don't actually know of another physician who studied landscape architecture when in formally in college like was that challenging to do all that studio and do all your pre-med classes at the same time yes and no in some ways it did you know take a lot of time and i did have to spend a fifth year of undergrad to be able to fit all the courses in uh, but in some ways both disciplines complemented each other really well because mm-hmm. My pre-med classes were a lot of classes where I'm memorizing a lot of facts, opening up Mm -hmm. that biology textbook. Everyone loves to mention the Krebs cycle and and really just you're memorizing a lot of detail and kind of regurgitating it, not super creative, but you're packing in a lot of content. And then on the design classes, you have to be really creative. It's taxing of the brain in a very different way. You're, mm. you know, you're given a big plot of land, like a plaza on campus, and you have a few months to come up with a new design. And this, it's the whole design thinking creative process. And that has its own challenges where you, you know, you might start off by doing some empathetic listening and trying to understand what the needs of the space are. But at some point you have to sit down and be like, this is what I want this space to look like. Yeah, It's a different perspective. And what I found for me, because I was doing both, I would actually, if I ever felt challenged or sort of had that writer's block or design block, mm-hmm. I would then go to my biology textbook and try to memorize some facts because it used a different part of my brain. And interestingly, I actually brought in a lot of principles of biology and natural organisms and kind of this biophilia mm-hmm. perspective into thinking about the design of space. And, you know, I could share some renderings or drawings. I had a diagram of a city with all of the organs laid out all over. Whoa, and it was like, so you know, cool. this part of the city was like the stomach and this, this road over here was the spine. And so for me, it was really this being able to, to go back and forth and look across disciplines was what was powerful. You remind me of an athlete who cross trains and you're using different muscles and you're using like different parts of your brain, jumping from like design studio to the science classes. And I'm curious to know, what did landscape architecture teach you or how did that impact your ability to think differently as a physician? You alluded to this before. Yeah, it completely transformed everything I knew about health. And really to this day, even though I'm not a practicing landscape architect, really carries through a lot of my work. Landscape architecture taught me to look at health at a much larger scale. Mm. A lot of the projects we worked on were looking at, you know, the scale of a city. We were looking at 
how do you design environments to promote health? How do you design environments that get people to walk and not just looking at the sidewalks and that, but also looking at nature? How do you bring trees in? What's attractive to people? So it was really expanding that perspective and and looking more broadly at the factors that drive health and realizing that there are people who make decisions about the environments we live in. Mm -hmm. And so that was one piece that gave me a new reference for health. And and then even broader than just kind of man-made environments is the, the natural environment because landscape architecture is really about designing with nature. And I think this is one of the key differences between landscape architecture and architecture and Mm. and how it might relate to medicine. In architecture, you come up with a vision for a building that has very exact specifications of exactly where all the doors and windows are going to go. And you have that final product. With landscape architecture, you do also have a lot of precise specifications But then a lot of what you design is actually left to the uncertainty of nature Mm. because you say you want to design a park and you want certain trees and plants to be there, but they may take 20, 50 years to grow to be part of your, your vision. And so it really teaches you about how to design for an uncertain future. You have to be okay with that where you have some level of kind of specificity and and human imprint but then you have to be okay with letting you know your design kind of be controlled by the natural elements. And I think that has some parallels when we think about connecting it back to the healthcare system, when we think about systems design and how we might like something to be. I think there's this notion of we try to come up with these you know, perfectly crafted ideas where we create all these nice diagrams and come up with like a great vision of how something's going to be. Yeah. But then the reality is it doesn't unfold that way. And I think that's mm. that's another piece that I, I learned from landscape architecture. Yeah. Like designing a clinical pathway, but then when in real life, it's like, oof, there's like, this does not work in real life or it, it takes on a whole different scale. And I heard you say that landscape architecture helped you think at different scales at a, as a physician? Can you explain that? Yeah, yeah. This this idea of multi-scalar kind of systems design thinking is is really, really powerful, or at least how, how I learned about it. So I'll talk about the landscape architecture piece and thinking and then talk about how it relates to healthcare. So take a large park like Central Park. I think it's one of the most famous parks that people are familiar with in New York City. And so when a landscape architect thinks about designing a park like that, you are designing across scales. You're thinking at the scale of the whole city, how cars and people might flow through there. Then you go to that medium-sized scale of like, okay, there's going to be a pond over here. There's going to be trees over here. There's going to be baseball fields over here. And then you get to the really small scale where you're like, okay, there's going to be a bench here right next to this path. Mm -hmm. And so you have to think about design across these scales, but then they also need to all integrate together. Mm. And when you think about that with a, with a healthcare system, you know, you might be looking at, for example, I know you're an ER physician and I'm a primary care pediatrician and in our day-to-day clinical flows, we run into a lot of systems issues, Mm -hmm. but that bear out in kind of individual, you know, actions 
And so oftentimes when you're thinking about how do you try to solve a particular problem that maybe you're noticing in your own clinical workflow or your neck of the hospital or clinic, mm-hmm. but then really you you realize that this is part of a, a broader issue that's probably happening to other parts of the hospital mm-hmm. Or it may be at that really large scale of, hey, there's like larger forces from like regulatory and economic forces yeah. that are leading to these these smaller issues. So I think for me, that's where that type of design at different scales helped me understand systems design and healthcare at different scales. Yeah, yeah. And I think I was reading somewhere or listening that maybe it's a problem like obesity and you know you're seeing a patient at the bedside but obesity, you know, you could you have a treatment plan for that one particular patient, but obesity is often multifactorial in its cause, and it's the systems at play that you're talking about. You know, whether it's totally. a lack of a lack of access to healthy fruits and vegetables, or a lack of trans mass transit, and you end up going in a car and not exercising, and the the policies around soda, for example. Yeah, it's a whole. Oh, there's all these different scales and it's just not that one individual behavior that leads to obesity when you see that one patient. Exactly. Exactly. And and then I think it's, you know, then as physicians or, you know, work or healthcare professionals, a lot of our training traditionally has been in what can you do in this immediate setting to address this problem? And we haven't necessarily had a lot of training and being able to look at systemic issues. And and that's changed, I think, over the past decade where there's been more of a focus on social determinants of health, environmental determinants of health. But there still is a bit of a translational gap in where, you know, you as a physician might identify, okay, maybe you learn that your patient who you're trying to help maybe get more physical activity or spend time more time in nature, you learn that they live next to a highway and it's not safe to walk outside. Mm-hmm. And for for a lot of us in the healthcare system, then it's sort of like that's the it feels like that's really the most we could do. We we learn about the barriers. But then I think there's this opportunity to help actually connect to the people who can make those changes, people in public health agencies and the parks department, really at that kind of broader level. And a lot of that I've learned through my training as a landscape architect. There are people who are looking at this larger scale of the city and trying to figure out how do we help create neighborhoods where children can get outside and play in nature, but then they're often not connected to that individual scale that physicians and other healthcare professionals can get where we're seeing these problems one-on-one. And so some of the work I do is trying to help bridge that divide from both sides. You're working on a cool initiative with a great name called Chill. What is Chill? Yeah, yeah. So CHILL stands for the Climate Health Informatics Lab. It's the bringing together of climate change, health, informatics, all together in this creative environment. And I think just in getting to CHILL, I think the other piece I wanted to just bring in is with this work that I've done as a landscape architect and kind of looking at systems issues of how do we connect people from the healthcare system to the broader you know, public health system at large and thinking about these environmental factors, I realized that there is a huge technology component to all of this. And so part of my training brought me into the world of informatics. 
And so it's really chill in a way is the culmination of a lot of different threads of my training in life in really looking at environmental health and informatics. You know, and I could talk a little bit more about that path, but I want to get just get into into talking about climate health informatics. Yeah, yeah. So when we when we think about climate change, it's this really big complex problem. It can be frustrating, it can be overwhelming. You don't know where to start. There's this tension where you feel like, okay, you know, how much can I do as an individual? Isn't it really just all the fossil fuel companies? And it feels like it's hard to really grasp. Yeah. It's like, hey, I recycle, I compost, maybe I'll buy an electric car if I had money one day, but what more can I do for the planet? It's like generations from now that we're talking about. Like, that's, I think that's a mindset of a lot of us. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think for me, one thing being a pediatrician, you know, so I'm in I'm in my 30s and you know, I had a childhood where I wasn't really thinking a lot about climate change, but that's not the same for a lot of younger people, many patients I take care of where climate change is a lot more immediate and an existential threat to their future. So if you talk to most young people, really kind of under 25 and you ask them what are the top three things they care most about some oftentimes all three of those are climate change that's an important piece to understand why why is that it's because we're starting to see the world that we live in you know we have created the society this industrial society that has a certain way of life Obviously, it's not equitably distributed across countries, even within the United States. There's a lot of issues of equity. But now our way of living is going to have to change to really be in balance with the earth. The lifestyle that we've created is not in sync with earth's capacity to handle it. And so if you're a young person now thinking that, you know, you'll be alive for a couple of decades, the world may start to look really different. And we already know from the research that comes from the IPCC, the COP conference that just happened, basically these gatherings of international agencies, they say that if the earth warms by more than 1.5 degrees Celsius by 2050, it's going to lead to a lot of catastrophic changes where one to two billion people may not have food or water or shelter. And over the past few years, we've experienced, you know, the crisis of COVID. We've seen a lot of refugees, crises. We're seeing a lot of natural disasters that seem to be an increasing frequency. And all of the best science shows us that this is just going to keep getting worse and worse and worse. They're really seeing and experiencing and potentially will face more of the consequences of how climate change impacts human health. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. And that connection of climate change to human health is one that is increasingly being recognized, not just by those of us working in healthcare. I think that's an important component of it, but really everyone who is trying to urge more action. I think a lot of times when we think about climate change, people think about transportation or recycling or energy use. But really, health is at the center of climate change, and there are a lot of linkages. And it's also a way to get people to understand on a much more personal level why climate change, why we should all care more about climate change. Can you talk about some of the linkages? Because I think most people listening don't see that direct correlation with 
climate change and human health. Like, yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. So there's, you know, two broad ways to look at it. There is when we think about climate change and people, things get broken down into adaptation and mitigation. So adaptation is really how is our world changing due to climate and what are we going to do to prepare for it? Mitigation is how do we decrease our, our impact for both adaptation and mitigation, there are connections to the healthcare system. But really on the adaptation side, with a changing climate, we have increased heat waves that leads to increased mortality and morbidity for the elderly and the very young. Yeah, We have changes in weather patterns that are leading to increased wildfires. Mm-hmm. Those wildfires lead to poor air quality. If you're living in places with air, poor air quality, and you have a respiratory illness like asthma, you're going to face exacerbations. But there's also a lot of things that are not as obvious. There's a lot of research now, including now some systematic reviews and meta-analyses that have reviewed you know, dozens to if not hundreds of studies, which actually show a strong link between exposure to poor air quality and premature and low-weight birth. Really? So, yeah, which wow. is not an obvious connection right yeah. away. But we're seeing, yeah, women, especially like in the West Coast, where there's been a lot of wildfires, there is a lot of evidence to suggest that that exposure to wildfire smoke is actually leading to preterm births. Mm. And so there's some connections that may be obvious with increased heat. You understand people might get heat stroke, but there's a lot of things that are not as obvious. And there's, you know, a change in climate. We're seeing changes in different disease patterns and things like Lyme disease might be in in more places than than previously expected. And so there are a lot of these linkages. And the the best place to learn more about it is the Lancet Climate Countdown. The Lancet, which is one of the top medical journals for the past five years now, five or six years now, has a report, an annual report they do on all the linkages between climate change and human health. Mm -hmm. And then the last piece I'll mention, There's many linkages here, but one that I think doesn't get mentioned enough is the links to between climate change and mental health, Mm. especially for younger people. Because of the existential threat that climate change poses, there are a lot of mental health concerns, anxiety and depression, uncertainty about the future. And so there are some great organizations that have started recently that specifically focus on the mental health aspects of climate change. A lot of powerful evidence. Listening to you talk though makes me a little bit depressed, Chathan. Like <laughs> to be honest, like what can we do? Like what can I do as a physician? This problem is so like big. I mean, it's like literally, literally the planet. Yeah, it's definitely can be depressing and can be tough to hear. And one response is to kind of ignore it and push it to the side. And for me, I think this is where my training as a designer and an informatician come into play. I think design is a way to help us imagine a better future. It helps us deal with ambiguity and uncertainty. So when things feel frustrating, feel so large that you can't do something about it, use the framework of design to break it down into manageable pieces, into that way of imagining a better future and not just letting into despair. Yeah. And then informatics also offers really great tools to be able to address very complex and large problems. Informatics 
There are many different definitions, but really it comes down to the intersection of people, process, and technology. It's about how do we use technology in the real world? How do we think about technology as part of a living, breathing system with people who use it rather than just kind of the cold software? And the field of clinical informatics is really about how technology gets used in healthcare settings. And what informatics offers, I think, to climate change, the links between climate change and health, are that it can help to quantify, help to measure, nudge behavior change. So those are some of the ways in which informatics, I think, plays a role. So I think climate change is this huge, complex problem that affects all of us. It's easy to despair and just brush it aside. But I think the scale, the urgency of it really demands all of our attention. And I think there are many ways to bring all sorts of training, even if you're not a designer or an informatician, whatever skill set you have probably has some value to play in addressing climate change. I mean, this is the design challenge of humanity. Yes. Climate change. Yes. What is your new organization, Chill, doing about this? Yeah. So Chill is this organization that's just getting off the ground, and it's really about bringing together people within healthcare and informatics, and really anyone who is interested as well. We want to make this an inclusive process. But what we see right now is that with the all of the health risks that I mentioned that can happen as a result of climate change, as well as healthcare systems trying to address their impact on climate change, Mm -hmm. there is a technology data informatics component to it. And so what we're trying to do is to come up with a framework to help put these pieces in place so that different projects can be accelerated. So on the one hand, I talked about climate change adaptation. So if there are wildfires and people with asthma might have exacerbations because of the poor air quality, we can use data. We have good weather data and we have tools like artificial intelligence, which can predict what might happen. We can actually connect the dots between poor air quality to identifying people who might be prone to an asthma exacerbation or COPD exacerbation or any other respiratory illness exacerbation within that area and use the tools of informatics of digital health Mm -hmm. to be more proactive and make sure those people have their inhalers that they, you know, maybe using their inhaler baseline controller inhaler to prevent their symptoms more proactively. And so that's one way in which the technology and data component can be used to better help people living in disaster prone areas. It's kind of like what happens when the weather report sometimes gives like the pollen count. And if you have like bad allergies, you know, it's, oh, there's a high pollen count so you could prepare. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's bringing together and it, it's really kind of this work in environmental health that has been going on for some time. But I think with climate change, it's the scale and urgency that's driving more of this work forward. So there's that part of it in terms of how we can use informatics data to help people better adapt to climate change. It's for individuals. It's also for health systems. Mm -hmm. For example, a few years ago in the Pacific Northwest, there was a major heat wave. 
that led to a lot of older individuals having heat stroke and coming into the emergency department. And part of this is because in the Pacific Northwest, there are not a lot of air conditioners. And what was happening, unfortunately, was a lot of people were coming into the emergency department who basically needed IV fluids, basic hydration and cooling. But because of that large influx, it was preventing people who were having heart attacks and other conditions from coming in. Mm. And so part of what's starting to happen is how do health systems at a regional level, along with their public health agencies, look at the data of what's happening. If we predict a heat wave is coming to a particular region, how can the health systems work together with the city to optimize where people go so that not everyone is coming into the emergency department all at once? And the city might set up cooling centers or Mm. tents that can provide hydration. So there's a data component to that. And many cities have actually now started to bring in, maybe not many, it's starting. Cities like Miami have actually just appointed their first chief heat officer to look at really city addresses heat. So that's, you know, that's an example of how data climate health intersect so there's that whole component of it. And really with Chill, what we're trying to do is say there are many different challenges going on, many different opportunities. We're trying to bring all the bright minds together in informatics with a design, interest in kind of design and addressing complex problems to figure out how we work together better and faster. Yeah. And, and in addition to the adaptation piece, there's also the mitigation side. And this is really how health systems can address their impact on climate because the U.S. healthcare system accounts for 10% of our country's greenhouse gas emissions. Wait, what? That high? That high. Like hospitals are responsible for 10% of greenhouse gas? Yes. Wait, how how much are cars responsible for greenhouse gas? So transportation as a sector, and I forget the exact number, but transportation as a sector is about, I think, 25 to 28%. And that's not just individual cars. I think that's planes, that's commercial trucks. So, you know, so healthcare is not that high, but to put it in context, healthcare system in the United States generates more greenhouse gases than the entire United Kingdom. Oh my gosh. Because of the scale of our country. And a big part of it is the amount of single-use plastics and material we have. Everything is single-use. Yes. It feels so bad after working a shift. And especially if there's like a code or, you know, one, it's just, it's hard, you know, taking care of a patient who's you're resuscitating. But then you look after aftermath, there is so much waste. Yes. Like literally, there's so much waste that I actually can't see the floor of a patient room. It's wow. littered with single-use plastic. Yeah. It's kind of astonishing the, the scale of, of waste we have. And that really is responsible for about 85% of the greenhouse gas emissions. It's all that kind of embedded energy and creating that material, transporting it over. So it's not really about, you know, 15% is really the energy use of the building you know, that power sources, but it's really all the other stuff. And so there are some people who have been working on this and doing some really interesting research. One of them, Dr. Cassandra Thiel at NYU, has been looking at how we do cataract surgery in the US, in the UK, and in India. 
And she found that she spent some time in India at the Arvind Eye Hospital, which is one of the top hospitals for eye surgery. In the world. Yeah, Yeah, in the world. In the world. And so she spent some time there looking at how they do cataract surgery and the material they use and compared it to what was going on in the NHS in the UK, which is in the UK systems more efficient than the US system in terms of material use. And found that for the same exact outcomes, for the same cataract surgery, the same outcomes in terms of the quality of the procedure, the success rate, the lack of infection, they were able to do the same surgery in India with only 5% of the emissions as they were in the UK. But I don't understand. Are these surgical instruments not being wrapped in plastic? Like how how do they do that? Because we love our packaging in the US. Yeah. I mean- I hate like I eat takeout all the time. I hate getting takeout because I look there's so much plastic generated. We like we love our plastic. So I think listeners might be going, well, what about infection risk? Exactly. Yeah. And so in the work they're doing, you know, they were looking at how do you make sure that you have the same outcomes, that there isn't that infection risk. And I don't know all the specifics of exactly the techniques they use. They do have sterilization techniques, but ways that are maybe less energy intensive, don't use so much single-use plastic, but might have other sterilization mechanisms. But ultimately, there's, yeah, able to find the same, have the same health outcome with less use. And so there's a lot of work going on right now in trying to create clinically sustainable care pathways And there's a lot of learning that the Western world can do from more developing countries, low and middle income countries that have had, you know, functioning healthcare systems that do a lot of surgeries often with less resources, um, but might have great outcomes still. And so there's, there's a lot of work in kind of understanding all of that. And then the informatics component is really quantifying, measuring, bringing this into the electronic health record in some ways and giving you a greener option. For example, when you use something like Google Maps or Apple Maps, it might tell you if you take route to, you know, option B instead of option A, it's a greener route. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh So there's work going on now. And this is a, a grant that I have along with some folks at Stanford. We're looking at different clinical pathway choices where you can, you know, make a different clinical decision still have the same outcome, but maybe have less of a greenhouse gas impact, starting to look into that and bring that into the EHR and get frontline healthcare workers thinking about this in day-to-day operations. What are hospitals doing about this? So you gave an example that you're doing. Are hospitals on a whole doing something about the environmental impact they're having? Yeah, I'm glad you asked because there is a lot going on kind of at the national level for hospitals. And some of this is being really championed through the the federal government. So through the federal government, the Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, has launched a new office of climate change and health equity. And so it's a relatively new office, which I think just started maybe less than two years ago. It currently doesn't have regulatory teeth to force anything, but this office has been working with healthcare systems across the country, as well as other organizations like the National Academy of Medicine Mm -hmm. to help hospitals come up with climate goals. And about 40 hospitals around the country have signed the climate pledge that has come out of HHS from the federal government. 
to set carbon goals. And these are in line with the Paris Agreement to help us achieve that making sure that the global temperature doesn't rise beyond 1.5 degrees Celsius. So these are pledges like the hospitals will reduce their emissions by 50% by 2030, Hmm. and they hope to get to net zero by 2050. Are hospitals hiring people with expertise in this? I can't think of like a climate person at my hospital system. It's starting to become a new role. They're starting to be chief sustainability officers coming into, into hospitals. Whoa. Um, yeah, it's a emerging new role. Tech companies and corporate America has been doing this for maybe three to five years, but it's it's a new thing for hospitals in the healthcare system, but that is starting to happen. Yes. Oh, I, I love that. Well, hospitals are usually about 10 years late to the game, so maybe we'll see some of these roles being filled <laughs> <laughs> soon. I hope. I hope much sooner than that. Yes. We're running out of time here and I want to give you, I know you have a busy schedule. If one of our listeners were to come visit you, where would you take them out to eat? Yeah. So I live in San Francisco and I would take them to this new restaurant actually I just discovered recently called Om Sabor. And it's really interesting because it's actually a fusion of Indian and Mexican flavors. What? So cool. And it's all vegan but very flavorful and tasty. And then the whole restaurant is actually inside a bar that plays great electronic music. And so it's it's a very <laughs> amazing, you know, fusion experience of Indian, Mexican, vegan flavors, all with a great DJ. Yeah, it's a really cool spot right in the heart of San Francisco. Dude, let's go there next time I see you. Can you take me out there? Definitely would love to, Bon. <laughs> Well, I appreciate your time. I, I love the work that you're doing. You are a renegade, an expert in climate change and how that impacts human health and love the advocacy work that, that you're doing. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me on the show and was really excited to talk about design, informatics, climate change, and uh, hope to continue this work and continue to work with others who are interested. I hope this conversation didn't depress you, but instead inspired you to think about how we can address the health impacts of climate change. You can follow Chathan at C-H-E-T-H-A-N-R and reach out to me on Twitter at B-O-N-K-U and on Instagram at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. Design Lab is produced by Rob Puglisi, editing by Fernando Carreros. The music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover designed by Eden Liu. See you next week.